like, it's been a long time since I worked it from home full time, but I was like, okay, well, this is like totally doable. And I'm super busy. I'm a little annoyed with all the people who are like, Oh, I've watched everything on Netflix. I've done all this and all that. And like, really? Because we threw out everything that we were working on and had to like completely shift. It's been a long couple of weeks. This is Fooditor Radio, is all dressed up and has no place to go. When the rest of us doing food media were just thinking how cool it was that Chicago had its own style of pizza, Chandra Ram was a cook in a little restaurant called Blackbird. She moved over to writing about food, and now she's the editor of Chicago-based Plate Magazine, a trade magazine aimed at chefs. Which is in kind of a funny situation right now, as we'll talk about here. She's also the author of several cookbooks, including one that's exceedingly well-timed for the current moment, the Complete Indian Instant Pot Cookbook, 130 Traditional and Modern Recipes. We spoke last week. But first, remember to subscribe to Fooditor Radio at Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, and subscribe to Fooditor's Buzz List for food news every week. Now let's fire up that Instant Pot. Yeah, so so what about Indian uh, slow Instapot cooking? Are you are you doing that? Do your neighbors are they already sick of that? Have they have they gone to you no, and said no, <laughs> enough already? Honestly, honestly, enough with the yeah. It's actually my my um, we have one neighbor like one couple lives on our floor, and um, I was so relieved. It was like a year ago when um, our neighbor Eric was like ah. Like, you know, that feeling when you get off the elevator and it's like Chandra's clearly been cooking for like four hours and you're like, oh my God, I'm so hungry. And I'm like, it's not on a door, man, because you know, a lot of my neighbors have been, uh, were, were not always the lucky recipients of recipe testing meals when I was working on the Indian cookbook. So uh, I'm, I was sort of like making a big point after I had the recipes perfected to be like, oh, here's what that crappy dinner I gave you is really supposed to be like. <laughs> so I I have been doing a lot of that and it's been really nice. There was, uh, I got kind of like a big pop of people texting me or posting on Facebook or Instagram, like, hey, I'm, you know, locked up at home and it's still kind of chilly out. So it's perfect, uh, you know, big stewy pots of of food time. So, um, yeah, I've been getting a lot of, a lot of people who are, especially like you mentioned, you've got your Rancho Gordo beans, everyone who's stocked up on beans and lentils and other pantry items are just sort of like, okay, so I'm cooking this. So it's kind of fun because I'm getting like little, just like DMS of what people are doing or questions they have. And it's nice to be like, Oh, okay. Like this is, this is making you happy. And, you know, that's the, that's the best thing you can hope for when you write a book, a cookbook. I'm approaching the point of having made all my standard repertoire in the last month. <laughs> so I, I am, I'm studying the, cookbook, the cookbooks I have quickly to find what, uh, you know, Mike's new classics will be. <laughs> Because the kid, you know, the kids, have, the kids have run out of requests. I've run out of things that I know, I know I can do. So it's going to be, 
it's time it's time to pick up a few new tricks yeah and it's also like hey you know i'm working full-time or even like more than full-time at this point with everything for the magazine but it's not like i'm doing my usual stuff on saturdays like i'm not going out to the gym i'm not having people over for dinner i'm not like doing whatever so it's like oh, okay well i can tackle this thing so i flagged some stuff from uh from cookbooks that I want to check out and to do some kind of project cooking. And, and, you know, it's, it's a nice, you know, I, I don't want to ever appear to like downplay how, you know, how bad the situation is overall, but if you, you know, it can't be bad news all the time. And there is the upside that we're, you know, if we're all kind of at home together, we can cook together. My husband and I are cooking together a lot. Is that a, a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> depends on the meal. It depends on the meal. Um, he's has, I mean, we, we approach things very differently. We just have very different ways of thinking. And, um, you know, I'm kind of coming from being very comfortable with food and impro- improvisation. And, you know, this is someone who is a physics major and really comes from a, um, comes at it for just like a different point of view. And so it's been, it's been kind of fun because I also don't want to, like, I kind of never want to be the, the food asshole, whether <laughs> it's someone who's, you know, talking down to people online or kind of interrupting and being like, Oh no, you're not doing it right. Or you should only really go to this place. And, and I don't want him to feel like, Oh, okay. I can never do stuff. So it's interesting. And then it's also, as I'm thinking about other cookbooks in the future, um, assuming there is a future, uh, it's so it's fascinating to watch somebody who is not a food person cook because he will come up with questions. I never knew a reader would potentially have. I mean, he's someone who's, uh, you know, who works in software. So he's, he's thinking along a very specific math based form of logic. And, and I also just think it's, it's really fascinating to have non-expert test recipes. Yeah. Like for the Indian book, I had people who knew Indian food very well test recipes and then I just put it out to like hey I would like some just regular normal people test this and that's how I found out that people didn't necessarily know that brown rice can't be swapped in for a recipe calling for white rice for example and I was like oh god so I like called my editor and I'm like we need to say brown rice or white rice every single time and she's just like really and I'm like yes really because someone just you know, a friend of mine just ruined the shrimp biryani because <laughs> the way I had it set up was the rice had soaked for a long time and, you know, it could cook uh, at the same time as the shrimp. And, but she did it with brown rice, not knowing. And I was like, okay, this is something that, that people need to understand. So you, you could bounce those shrimp off the floor at that point. Oh man. I mean, those shrimp are probably, I don't know, they're probably used as like props at this point. uh, And, uh, you know, I've been baking bread all the time. And so now I'm, I'm actually playing around with uh, baking sourdough with all purpose flour because I'm still striking out on bread flour. So, um, um, so that's one thing I actually don't want to do. One of the main bakers at King Arthur who makes bread flour, obviously uh, says, Oh yeah, I always use all purpose flour instead. 
I can't remember what the context was. And that's I saw the thing. It, it, it's like it's flour. It's going to cook. It, it'll be okay. Yeah, and I think it's Ileana Reagan has been really great on Twitter advising people about baking sourdough. And she said, you know, I think you're probably going to have to knead the dough a little bit more and give it some more shaping, but it will still work. And Jim Leahy's uh, no-knead bread and even the sourdough no-knead bread can use AP flour. So, and I sort of like, I love baking bread. I've baked bread for a a long time. I got to do like a week-long intensive at the French pastry school uh, on just on bread baking. It kind of picked up, like I went to culinary school years ago, but we kind of did a short amount of bread baking and I just always been into it. And that's in my mind, that's my dream job. Um, (laughs) It's just hang out and knead dough and watch it ferment. But yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's kind of cool to see like what the changes are with AP flour and uh, versus bread and just what the results are and playing around with different versions of, uh, of bread because, you know, we're, we're cruising through it. So, yeah. yeah. Now, I've been, doing the the same, time. I've been doing the same thing. And I also am using my, because flour is so precious at the moment. I'm using the the stuff I pour off to feed the sourdough starter and things like that. So I'm making, you know, a lot of cinnamon rolls and things like that. I actually have the uh, the Nordic uh, bakery baking book, which is by one of those guys, Favakan, or you know, one of those oh, yeah. Swedish yeah. restaurants. Um, Magnus, yeah. So I have, you know, I have his book from his restaurant, which is total, you know, from the planet Zoob stuff. <laughs> and then the bakery book is real homey and very friendly. I really am liking it, you know, looking at finding these kind of obscure Swedish pastries uh, and trying to make them and stuff like that. So the one thing I've noticed is that commercial yeast must not be nearly as strong in europe or in scandinavia as it is in america because he'll call for insane amounts of yeast and it'll be like Mm -hmm. a sitcom you'll have the the hot air balloon sized thing of dough taking over your kitchen in no time if you actually use that much (laughs) yeast so uh you have to cut it way down but i'm now i'm using the starter mostly anyway so it's probably like how wine in europe is so much more subtle than wine in america or other parts of the new world so, I mean, you get like, you know, a Pinot from uh, from Burgundy versus California or even Oregon or something like that. And it's like ours is so like slap you in the face compared to the subtleties you get. It's probably just like national mood or spirit <laughs> translated into yeah. their fermentation product. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. There's an essay in here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I've always been very conscious about waste. I grew up with immigrant parents and um, my father was Indian. So we went to India every other year for these extended trips. And, you know, I saw just crazy poverty that, you know, otherwise wasn't part of my life, you know, growing up in a college town in Kentucky. And so I find that I'm being extra sort of picky about these things. Um, you know, like I'm tearing off small pieces of paper towels if I have to use a paper <laughs> towel for something. Like I'm just there. And part of it is you don't know if you're going to be able to find paper towels. Right. And part of it's like it's kind of this ethos that I just grew up with 
anyways. Like I remember my dad would like being so frustrated when I was a kid that my dad would take his lunch to work every day. And he was the, he was like a surgeon and the chief of staff of the university hospital, but he would take his lunch to work every day in a brown bag and he would bring the bag home every day. <laughs> and I was like, why can't we be cool and use a fresh brown bag every day? And now I'm like, what kind of maniac throws out their brown bag when they've only used it once? Yeah. So um, <laughs> I'm getting deep in that. So, and, you know, and doing that with food as well, which is something that I've, I've always sort of been into and I'm, I'm like really finding the opportunity since I don't have the commute to and from work and, um, you know, can kind of duck out in between, you know, writing something and then go into the kitchen and do whatever. So I'm really kind of getting into this idea of like, how do you take your, like what you have at home, your pantry, if everyone's doing pantry cooking now, and I kind of say pantry, I live in an apartment kitchen. So, you know, I say my pantry is the, you know, the two cabinets I've got for dry goods, plus my freezer, plus my fridge. And it's like, okay, like, how do you take, you know, I did a thing on, on Instagram and trying to like post regularly about like things you can do to upgrade it. And it's like, okay, so you just made pickled onions and that's great. But like, don't throw that brine away. You can use it in vinaigrettes. You can use it in marinades. You can actually use it to make pickled onions one more time because you're not canning those. That's like a refrigerator quick pickle. Right. How do you make your own zatar or make your own everything bagel spice? Um, because you can't just run out to Trader Joe's or wherever. How do you make your banana bread interesting? My high point so far was we ordered too much rice to go with our Thai food from In on Thai in that I ordered rice. And then when it got it, realized that none of them were actually rice dishes. Uh, so, oh. I made, so I took my, you know, my uh, Thai restaurant rice and made rice pudding for everybody. So I oh, that see? was just... It's that, like- that was so damn homey of me, and yet kind of big city I yuppie mean, at the same time. <laughs> You're so walking the line there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly it. Like, you always have, like, it's like if you order takeout and rice is some component of it, you're always going to have leftover rice. It's just a, you know, it's it's like a, a physics law or something like that. Well, the other one for me, too, is like not letting my younger son have a hot dog every day for lunch. So some of the things that I plan for dinner meals wind up being lunch just because they're the easy ones to throw together. Like I had, uh, I had bought a piece of salmon at Fresh Farms in Niles and it was a few days and that wasn't going to be good for much longer, but I had kind of the meal, the dinners planned out. So I just put some uh, teriyaki sauce on it and broiled it and put some rice in the rice cooker and we had Japanese lunch that day. Did you put it in a hot dog bun or um, <laughs> as is done in the finest kitchens in Japan? Or Yeah, um, I know. It would have had to be a really nice white bread hot dog bun that was like the best one you ever had in your life. Those, uh, those split buns that Ryan McCaskey gets for the lobster right. rolls at Acadia, he shipped them in from Maine. I used yeah. to live in Maine. I remember those buns. Those were good. Yeah, it's, it's like that. There was when we went to Tokyo. I remember there was a place where you could get American breakfast, and I don't know what the deal with the white bread was, but man, just plain white toast at that place was so fantastic. 
you know, it sounds ridiculous, but it really was wonderful. It was the the platonic ideal that White Toast has been striving toward for centuries. So, um, do you think it was like a Japanese milk bread, or probably, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And you pay big money for that at at uh, uh, Kamiko, Kiko, whatever that was, where I had a reservation last week. Um, Oh, oh, I know. It's kind of sad, isn't it? When you when you like you get a you get a schedule like reminder pop up and you're like, oh yeah, that's not happening. Yeah, or, not or going sad, to that dinner. Saddest of all is Open Table saying, "How was Kamiko? Please leave a review." And <laughs> it was very quiet. For people who don't know, Plate is essentially a trade magazine, but unlike a lot of them that are about uh, new markets that Chipotle has moved into, it's very chef-oriented, it's very food-oriented, and so is something that the normal person could look at with pleasure. Um, I don't know. Anything else you want to say about what it is? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're pretty much just focused on interviews with chefs and articles and, and kind of like, uh, you know, photography about food. Um, and we, you know, our main audience is chefs around the country. Um, but we also have what I call our group of high functioning foodies. And these are the people who love restaurant recipes and don't necessarily want to get, a, you know, a magazine that's got Christmas cookies or something like that. Yeah. They want like, <laughs> oh, this is how I make the duck that I had at, uh, you know, Maple and Ash or, you know, this is this is like what chefs are cooking. So all those people who have entire, you know, kitchens and collections of copper cookware that are more than my entire net worth. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, your your target market is something that's on hold at the moment, chefs. So how did that affect you? Yeah, super weird. It's very weird because we, um, we're coming into like our fourth week of, of living in this. And um, we've had to, to pivot, I guess. Um, I'm using that word too much lately, but it feels like what everyone's doing we've had to do way too much of that or, you know, just a lot more of that than, than we expected. Um, you know, for example, the March, April issue, of the magazine is all about sustainable seafood, which is not something that a lot of chefs are looking at right now, only because the, the seafood isn't one of the you know more popular things to serve takeout. Um, but also, I mean, we, we had to kind of make some big decisions very quickly. So we have, uh, we do six print issues a year and then uh, four newsletters a week. And one of those newsletters is all restaurant recipes. And that doesn't feel super relevant right now. And uh, the other one is uh, sort of like a national version of the um, chef openings, chef and restaurant openings and closings and people moving around that, uh, that you, you would see in the dish column in Chicago magazine, but it's every restaurant opening, closing and chef move in the, in the country. And we suspended that for the immediate time because we don't want to put out a newsletter that's just, here's, you know, 300 restaurants that closed this week. Right. Yeah. So not super fun. So, um, and then otherwise, yeah, we, 
we have always focused so hard on chefs and food. And quite frankly, food is still very important, but it is among the least important things to chefs right now. Um, right now, it's, it's about how do you how do you survive? How do you make the decision to go to delivery or shut down completely? How do you take care of your staff? How do you fundraise for them if you had to close? Um, how do you handle, how do you help out your undocumented workers? Um, so our coverage is very, um, it's very focused on that. We've been getting into topics I never thought we would get into um, how to sue your insurance company for not covering your disruption in business. You know, I've never <laughs> seen that. that one. I've never seen that in food and wine or your, or even women's day. I have to say. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm sort of like, okay, well this is, um, this is a slight shift in tone. I mean, the lead item is, one of the lead items in our newsletter this week was um, how to close your restaurant, which is, super not fun to write about. I mean, I definitely miss when we could get into like hardcore arguments about tahini, <laughs> but, um, you know, but uh, it's something that I immediately started getting texts and, you know, DMs and emails from people saying, thank you. I, you know, unfortunately this is information we need to know. And my, you know, it's so complicated and everything is so hard. And we've got a, we've got a writer who is just like, Hey, I'm going to do a super deep dive into PPP and what are the pros and cons of going for one of those, and what are the issues that you know are making this untenable for a lot of chefs and restaurant owners. So the PPP is the Paycheck Protection Program, and it's essentially what's been touted as a loan that small business owners and you know, for our purposes, chefs and restaurant owners can uh, can take from the government. The problem is it requires them to maintain their full staffing as to what they had earlier in the year or even for part of last year and keep that staffing going past, I believe it's June 1st is the official date. But most restaurants that closed uh, won't be able to maintain that staffing after June 1st. And probably already got rid of it, didn't they? Yeah, I think there is some way you can sort of immediately rehire everyone and still qualify for it. Uh, but the issue is, are the restaurants going to be able to reopen June 1st? Most people I talk to say nowhere near June 1st. Right. And then separate from that, is there going to be enough business to, to sustain that? If you normally had 50 employees, say, for a small restaurant, and you open up again, are you going to have enough business to sustain those 50 employees? Probably more like 35 or 40 employees. A ton of other people lost their jobs too. Yeah. I mean, to a certain extent, there'll be a desire to go back to restaurants. But like you say, no one's, you know, a lot of other people won't have the money to do that. There'll be a certain hesitancy to be back in big crowds, I think. You know, all those reasons. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it's, um, so those are really different topics for us. And, you know, we we scrapped our plan for the July issue of the magazine, and we're making that issue be about the future of restaurants. And what does this mean? There are a lot of there are a lot of problems that are have always felt very inherent to the restaurant industry. 
like uh, unsustainable wages, um, an inability to take care of uh, undocumented workers who are, are as much as 11% of the food service workforce. Um, the problem of tipping, of having uh, a wage-based tipping model, um, not offering health insurance, not offering other benefits, extremely low wages, the disparity between what the front of the house and back of the house are paid. And people have always said, you kind of can't fix a lot of these things unless you completely blow up the industry. Well, guess what's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. So is this an opportunity to make some of those changes? I don't know. Stay tuned. We'll have the answer in July. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and we're getting back to some of our food focus with, uh, you know, we're, we're getting into what are, you know, how are people mastering takeout, which I find fascinating. Um, you know, I mean, I have been listening to the podcast and I know you've been talking about what people are doing in terms of takeout. And I, you know, I've definitely had that moment where I'm like, I want to order takeout food and I start flipping through websites and I'm like, everybody is selling pasta or lasagna and maybe I want something different. There's so much pasta and so much fried chicken out there. Yeah. So it's been cool to do all this research and find other things, though, and find stuff that people are doing um, that still feels very like it feels like their food as opposed to what's the comfort food thing that, I, you know, that will be cost effective and easy to portion and deliver and all of that. Well, you know, it's interesting as someone who orders a certain amount of takeout food and pretty much the same three things over and over. Um, it's it's definitely changed how I look about it, partly because, it, you know, in the past when I'd order it, it, it was just kind of utility food. It's like, oh, let's just get a pizza, and then we're taken care of for the day. Mm -hmm. it, it could just be a big white can with black letters on it that said pizza, and we open it up, and then, you know. <laughs> um, but... I'm th more thoughtful about it, partly because I just have the time to be. I mean, I have not ordered anything to be delivered to my house. We go and get it because what else do we have to do? You know, and it's it's. An I know. Last week, I was like, it's kind of beautiful to drive down to Virtue and pick up my dinner and like spend some good quality time with Lakeshore Drive without, you know, a million other people on the road. It's kind of yeah, nice. yeah, yeah, exactly. And I've tended to pick places better. I've been more thoughtful about what I'm getting. At the same time, I'm real conscious of I don't want to shift all my takeout to semi-fancy restaurants. I mean, not that, like, say, Table Donkey and Stick or Virtue is if particularly a fancy restaurant, but it's more upscale than ordering from sure. the Chinese place on Ashland. It seems kind of wrong to, you know, screw the little guy who's been making Chinese food for me for 20 years in favor of, you know, the hot new thing, which is that some sit-down restaurant has takeout now. So I'm mixing that up, but I am thinking a lot about those guys off in other parts of the city that I should support them. I should, you know, I should drive west of Western and go find something interesting to eat. I don't know. I just, uh, I am thinking about takeout. And the other thing that it's done is make me very much against the takeout services because we've just heard so much, which we all knew, but kind of just ignored about how they're really a screwing for the restaurants and they're doing kind of predatory things and all that stuff. So, Oh my God, it is just straight up evil. Grubhub is sending out messages 
to customers in San Francisco asking them to lobby on their behalf because London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, is considering legislation that would force them to cut their fees. Like, please do not act like you are on the side of restaurants because you are solely here for your own. Like, you are looking at a global pandemic and saying, how can I profit from this? I just had read that myself, and I was thinking, wow, that's a real contrast to Mayor Lightfoot, who couldn't wait to get up on a podium with Grubhub's Matt Maloney and and talk about how wonderful Grubhub was for delaying some of their fees. They're just going to collect them later. Um, so, you know, I had, um, I had heard that it was sort of misrepresented to her yeah. and that there was, there was going to be some sort of circling back, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. It's one hopes. Um, cause that was just, that was foolish. I thought to, to immediately jump in bed with those guys, um, for no clear benefit to her, except that it was an opportunity for a press conference to say, Hey, the city's still running. It's still alive. Yeah, I mean, that is something that I feel like is it's a big part of any conversation or text exchange I have with chefs these days. And then, you know, it's it's my um, my PSA announcement anytime I'm doing a, a Zoom happy hour with friends who aren't in the industry. And everyone's like, oh, what are you getting for takeout? And I'm like, no, you guys know you call the restaurant and you go and pick up your food yourself. Yeah. Or you have the restaurant deliver it if they are doing some some places have shifted, have figured out the insurance ramifications of having their own staff uh, handle deliveries. And I'm like, okay, fine, but you don't pay these, these third-party apps. And people are like, oh, no, wait, I thought. And I'm like, no. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, you get an educational component to every cocktail hour with me these days. You get to hear my rant. So fun <laughs> for everyone, I'm sure. <laughs> so are you doing a lot of that? Of like Am chat- I doing a lot? Um, of chatting with your friends over Zoom or whatever? Um, cause I'm not, I am. I'm I not, am. I just started a podcast, so I'm doing a lot of those and it's been great because, um, it's, it's like prompted my family to do a weekly zoom call. And, you know, I have an older brother, uh, who lives in Kenya with his wife and two kids. And it's always hard to coordinate the time zone right. of, what am I doing on a Sunday morning or afternoon? And like, you know, easily half the time or more, I am sort of like, oh, wait, I'm going to finish this. And then I'm going to call those guys. And then I realize it's like bedtime for the kids and it's too late to call. And <laughs> so there's some really cool stuff that, you know, I, I like that. I think the happy hours are fun. I think it's interesting. I wonder if we're all going to be come out of this like semi-trained to have run out of conversation in 40 minutes because that's what zoom <laughs> allows you to do when you have the basic. Account. Yeah. Like, I wonder if we're just going to be like, okay, well it's been 40 minutes. So I'm going to go. We you know my, my wife does it with her team. And I have to say the first week she did it, I just was like sitting there off to the side, listening to it all. And I, you know, I only know a couple of these people, but just hearing all adults talking to each other, it was, you know, it was kind of soothing for the soul. By the second week, that I run out. <laughs> well, I don't have kids, but um, I do have cats that I talk to and like, I totally use like a baby voice with the cat. <laughs> so I just have to make sure that with the cats jump up, I like, you know, still sound like a functioning adult. Right. <laughs> talking to them. But, you know, you, you brought up this whole thing about takeout, which I... Um, you know, it's it's so weird because this pandemic has put us in a little bit of a 
I, I feel like I'm in this kind of constant moral quandary of what restaurant do I support? Yeah. Like, is it up to me if this place survives or not? I mean, I made a point. We live in Lincoln Square. And so Rainbow Thai is our go-to Thai place. And when I went there a couple of weeks ago to pick up some takeout, I was asking the guy um, at the counter, one of the owner's sons was there. And I was like, how's business? How are you guys doing? And you know, we go there a lot and they kind of, I think at least recognize us by faith that like, oh, okay, these people come here and get takeout or, or dine in. And uh, he was like, no, it's really, we're really, really busy. And I was like, okay, good. Like, I want to make yeah. sure that you guys survive. And then now I have this list of restaurants. And I'm like, okay, what are the most important ones? And it's hard to be in this quandary of who do I decide needs the business to keep going. And, you know, and you're in that position for, for, for any business that shut down. Um, the bookseller is the local independent bookstore in my neighborhood. And God bless, I've got a bookstore that has a bar in it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not a full bar, but like you can get beer and wine there. I mean, that's the kind of business America needs friends. So it's this thing of, okay, we've got to make sure that we're and it's always been this way, like, okay, we need to go to the bookstore instead of ordering from Amazon or whatever. But now it's like that much more important that, you know, they figured out a way to do book delivery directly from their distributor warehouse. So they can stay in business. So we need to support them. Well, yeah, no, I, I am very conscious of it, particularly because my wife working in, you know, banking for estates and trusts. I feel we're we're very much not impacted by it personally, so it is a responsibility to support the people I know. The trouble is I know way too many people in the restaurant business, so I am kind of being a little choosy and also like spreading it out. I'm not I'm not inclined to like oh, I'll throw a bunch of money at Schwa cuz they treated me last time and they, you know, they're so wild and crazy. But it's just like there's a lot of them, and I do want to support them. I want to keep them alive. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I mean, you, I'm in the same boat where I'm like, ooh, I really like this person, and oh, I love that little restaurant, and I need to, you know, I need to make sure I'm supporting. So I'm not supporting any one place consistently, but yes, trying to be like, okay, and the, you know, how do I divide it up, and then also how do I manage you know, the responsibility of sheltering in place. So I basically have one day a week when I go out and, um, you know, I hit Perman wine selections is, has always, has been my go-to wine shop for many years and I can order online and call them and they do no contact curbside where they ask me to pop the trunk Craig or Hannah puts the wine in the trunk of the car. I close the trunk. You know, if we've got time, we'll do a couple of minutes of conversation of me sitting in the car and they're on the sidewalk and just, you know, kind of check in and say hi. And, you know, so I do that. Um, I'm going to Florial this afternoon because Sandra was uh, selling some stuff that she had in her freezer and uh, some bread flour which is obviously one of the hot commodities on the market today. Uh, so I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to split rail and pick up some fried chicken for dinner. You know, I, I love cold fried chicken. I'm from Kentucky. So 
where we like our we like our chicken at all temperatures. So, um, and I really love a fried chicken salad. So that'll probably be on deck uh, for tomorrow or sa- or Sunday. So I try to like stack things up, and then it's sort of like okay for the next few days we've got a random assortment of porkette gravy from Purple Pig, and we've got <laughs> fried chicken from Split Rail, and we've got some gumbo from Big Jones, and you know we've got some greens, collard greens from Virtue, and um, you know just mix and match some stuff. It's made for some interesting creative cooking. I will say that I was doing recipe testing on some different cookbooks to evaluate them. So I've got some, um, album digas in the freezer. I'm going to roast those, some, uh, meatballs, and I'm going to toss them with some of the, uh, collard greens from virtue and some rice and make kind of a rice bowl situation going to do a little free form like that. Um, so it's kind of a, and that's sort of like, that's my jam is looking at what I've got in the pantry, in the fridge, in the freezer and being like, okay, all right, no, this is what we're doing. Well, I got uh, a shipment of meat from uh, Jake's country meats on Saturday and uh, part of it was a, a pork shoulder, so that's on the smoke right now. I'm like radiating smoke as I sit here. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, so that's going, and and I have some of my Rancho Gordo beans, uh, making Boston baked beans in the oven. So, um, nice. that's my, uh, it's going to be the 4th of July here at my house, apparently. Oh, no, it, it, it's just that, like, it's this, this kind of, improvising that I think if you're comfortable with it, it kind of makes this part really fun. You know, I got a message that Justin Carlisle in Milwaukee is selling like his, his family owns a, uh, a beef or their beef ranchers. And um, he's selling, he's able to sell some of his uh, ground beef, I think at his ramen place. And a friend of mine, um, Tom Ben Lenti, the chef, like his wife, Shannon, uh, you know, they're good friends of ours. And Shannon's driving up to Milwaukee today. So she's like, hey, who wants me to pick up ground beef or hot dogs from Justin? And so um, she was doing that. And I was like, hey, do you guys need, did you order anything from Florial? Because I'll pick it up and then we can do a croissants for hot dogs swap. But, uh, I see it kind of like the like the spy trade in Bridge of Spies. You'll each like walk halfway out on the bridge, set it down, and back up. Right, exactly. Like no contact, but um, here's a delicious croissant. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, is this is this the future, or is this in fact how the pilgrims did it? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> well, yeah, definitely I was, a change. I saw the thing about the Carlisle beef, but I kind of didn't want to like. It seemed crossing a state line seemed to be violating my uh, sense of what I could get away with. You know, I'm I'm okay driving out to Kane County to tromp around a forest preserve because I'm I'm in a hermetically sealed tube till I get there. But uh, I don't know, transmitting Chicago diseases to Milwaukee I, that was that was worrying me. Well, Justin is a a good friend who's like family. So I was like, okay, like this, this we can do. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the whole other part of it. I mean, it's the, there's the whole other moral quandary of, are we putting rest of the restaurant employees we love in a precarious position by having them continue to go to work? 
like I, for one, am not missing getting on the L every day. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, and just wondering, is that going to be, I'm like, are they going to expect me to get on the L and, and go to work? I mean, that's a real what? question. Yeah, no, the CTA, who knows? I think I'm going to need something stronger than a bandana around my face <laughs> to uh, get through that. <laughs> they, they, they'll, it'll wind up uh, refitting the cars with all these things that are like phone boots and you each go into your own and, you know, and it automatically de- disinfects itself after you step out and all that. Phone booth. Mike Gebert, how freaking old are you? Come on. <laughs> well, I was going to say cone of silence, <laughs> like in Get Smart, but I thought that would make me look too old. It's when we're talking, when we're using our shoes as phones, then yeah. we're achieving peak Get Smart. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, something I wanted to get back to, we were talking early on about, uh, you know, you having to cancel a couple of your newsletters. And we just heard yesterday, poor Anthony Todd and Dish, which you mentioned, uh-huh. uh, getting put on hiatus for the time being. And it's interesting. I, mean, I think one of the things that we're looking at, and the media will certainly be affected by all of this is it's a it's an important time to talk about food but who supported you're talking about food you know they're not going to spend that money so you either keep doing some of those things so as you say you you know the subject matter just may not be relevant at this point um but anthony had done a nice job of talking about things in the present time so it's not like dish didn't have the opportunity to be relevant it just didn't have the opportunity for anybody to want to pay for it so and you know they are Tribune company. So the Tribune and the owners of the Tribune are you know are are you know destroying it slowly as, as opposed to you know I think the the Cleveland plain dealer just got gutted. Yeah, and it's more honest in some ways. The, yeah, I mean at least it's like at least tell me you're screwing me over. Um, it's a very weird thing happening in journalism right now. Um, you know, Thrillist just laid off, I think, the entire food and restaurant department. Um, I think uh, the City Magazine in San Diego uh, just went under. There's, uh, there's a few other sites that have gone under. And it's so strange because page views are through the roof because everybody has, you know, their home. They have the time to read more we're in this sort of panic period of feeling because of our insecurity and our grief and our confusion about what's happening. We have this need to get constant information. And so people are going and they're reading it and it's just, um, you know, I think it's, it's a really crazy struggle for publishers to explain like, Hey, your readers are here. And, and, you know, we've had some advertisers and ad agencies make a point of reaching out and saying, hey, we are here with you and we know what you're doing is important and it's not necessarily going to immediately translate to us selling more, you know, French fries or walnuts or whatever. But we also get that the importance of showing the restaurant industry that we're not dropping out of everything. Yeah. So, but then we've also had people who, you know, I, I pretty much, I stay out of that stuff and we definitely have a strong wall between uh, sales and editorial, but um, you know, I know we definitely have people who've dropped their advertising and it's weird because like page views are up, but publications make money off of advertising 
and advertising is connected. Advertising rates are connected to page views, but obviously not closely enough. So yeah, when we're talking about systems that don't really make sense and business models that aren't necessarily working. Well, yeah, I mean, you can, you can have the page views, but if my business is dropped dead, I kind of don't care what your page views are. I mean, it's great if certain large companies have the resources to take the long view in that case. I don't know, you know, from my point of view, I mean, if I didn't have this book project going on, which means I need to have a public profile and keep, you know, keep feeding some news out there for the next two, three years as I work my way through this book, I'd be seriously thinking about Fooditor transitioning to a paid subscription model, even if it means I only have 50 readers. But it's just one of those things where I think we've sort of proven that for, you know, what I do, the advertising model doesn't work because you cannot be a full-time con- content creator and also be an ad sales guy at the same time. Yeah. And frankly, it's, you know, at some point 15 years ago, um, I, I kind of put the, the much of the blame squarely on newspaper publishers because they put all of their content online for free with immediate access and said, no one is ever going to give up getting their newspaper. And now it just feels like such a quaint idea that when I was growing up, my parents got the newspaper. And so essentially my father would come home from work and my mother, like at some point during the day would have read the paper, but they were reading what happened a day or two or three days before (laughs) when now it's like, I mean, now I'm just sort of like, okay, how many times can I refresh Twitter and find out like what happened 75 seconds ago in San Francisco? So it's, um, you, you want to know how old I am. Speaking of phone booths, <laughs> you want to know how old I am? I used to deliver Uh-oh. the afternoon paper. I mean, I hope your children are tending to you um, like the fossil you are. <laughs> Abraham Parnassus here. I'm so old. I like to I like to dazzle people every now and again and say, like, do you remember how good dittos used to smell? <laughs> and see, you get it. Like when you would when there weren't photocopiers and they used those funky ditto machines, yeah. and you get your math test, and the paper was still like a little bit damp in some way, and uh, it just smelled good. Oh, children, you you don't know what you missed with the ditto ink huffing portion of uh, life in the 70s and 80s. (laughs) I do kind of miss that it's all on computers, even though obviously I live, you know, 19 hours a day on my computer. But, you know, hunting for things in libraries, looking through old books, the particular smell that old books have, you know, all those tactile things. And just the fact, I mean, the joy for me of collecting you know, a few small areas of old books, like there's an author named Thorne Smith that I, you know, have pretty much all his books. It died the minute you could just go online and order them because it was all in the hunt. Yeah. Like there is something that's like, there are a lot of things that used to be special that aren't special anymore because they're just available to anyone, anytime. And if you appreciated that hunt, and, you know, like you say, like that, that sort of like the very tactile feel and the experience of picking up an old book. And I wonder what this time right now is doing to us, where are we going to feel comfortable picking up an old book? And, you know, like, are you going to, how are you going to feel about this? And I just think, 
like I got into scuba diving a few years ago. My husband got me into it. And at first, the first time I did it, I, you know, the dive master later told me that like I was the person that, that they were all like, she is never going to do this because I couldn't turn off my brain in terms of thinking, how am I going to breathe? Yeah. And you have to, for years afterwards, before I did my first dive, when we were on a trip somewhere, I would just say to myself, don't think about it. Just do it. Just, you have to trust that you've got this regulator in your mouth and you can breathe. And this really helped me because I have had moments, like I had a moment, we were diving in, in Mexico a couple of months ago, and I had a moment like very, very deep, I think 80, 100 feet deep, where I started to have narcosis, where you, um, you just, like your brain starts to flip out because you're not getting enough oxygen. And uh, you have to know, you have to trust that you can breathe because you can't just shoot up to the surface, right. which is all, which is a long way of saying, I think we're going to have to suspend what our brains are going to freak out about a little bit yeah. and feel okay going into a restaurant, go, you know, going into a library, going, you know, at some point it may not be until there's a vaccine, but at some point I do want to go back to a show, yeah, to a concert. I miss those. Yeah. Now when I wonder about some of these food writers who talk about, you know, swabbing down their Amazon packages when they come, are they going to feel good in restaurants or are they going to be permanently creeped out by it? And I'm not attacking that. It's just, it's a rational response. It just doesn't happen to be mine, but it's certainly out there. Right. I mean, how are you going to, are you going to be okay picking up a menu that a dozen other people have already touched that day or wiping your mouth with a napkin? But on the other hand, do you want all your restaurants to start switching to paper napkins and paper menus? I'd be okay with paper menus, I guess, but paper napkins, like really? Like, so we are going to have to, there's going to be a process of feeling more comfortable, but, you know, since we are a couple of oldies talking about days of yore, I'm young enough, but I don't necessarily remember this, but (laughs) the seventies had a really substantial recession and it was, it was bad enough. There was a gas shortage and I, I, I want to reiterate, I'm not old enough to remember this, but um, there was a point where you had to, you had assigned days when you could get gas and people lined up, their cars lined up down the street to get gas and they couldn't always get more than a couple of gallons. And America, you know, because of our belief that as soon as things are good, we should just feel like we can burn it all down. Like America rebounded and we had the 80s and all the excess of that. And of course, we had October 87 and a nice like stock market crash and all those things. But it's like people will forget. Yeah. But right now, it's super weird to wa- even like watch people on TV like in a crowd or hugging each other. I'm like, whoa, whoa, yeah. what are you guys doing? <laughs> you just met that guy. I talked to Muser the other day and he said, you know, that like on that same note, the one that freaks him out is the idea of his beautifully uniformed servers going out with masks on at ever and gloves. And oh gloves. my God. And that, you know, just... ever is going to have like the most amazing gloves though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. That's the thing. It'll have to be cool in some new way, I guess. Cause otherwise. Right. Like, messy. are we going to have Purell on tabletops next to salt and pepper? <sighs> I mean, is it, like what is going to happen? I do think that that's a that's a distinct possibility. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, we're we're going to have to just 
figure out what life is like, but, and, and how much of it do we want to take that seriously? Like I don't actually sanitize my meal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't know. I like you know. it. I like to live a little crazy and you know that. Thanks for listening to Food Eater Radio is all dressed up and has no place to go. And thanks to my guest, Chandra Ram. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Please subscribe to Food Eater Radio at the podcast app of your choice and consider leaving a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover it too. Thanks 